We're in Luke chapter 1 this morning. Uh, Now, I spent a lot of time last week talking about my favorite movie, It's a Wonderful Life. Today, I thought we might focus on another true classic, Home Alone. And y'all, if you're, now if you're near my age, you know this feeling. I had a unique experience with this movie. It was released in 1990 when I was eight years old. I was the exact age of our little hero, Kevin McAllister. And so me and all my friends, Jennifer was, was this way too. As an eight-year-old, it really felt possible that this could happen to me and that I needed to be ready for it in the same way that Kevin was. Now, it's funny, too, because the most unbelievable part of that story for me now as an adult is how Kevin got all those groceries for less than $20. (laughs) Go back and watch it and see what I mean. It's crazy. Y'all, I want to talk this morning, though, about there's only one really serious part of that movie. It's the part where, where Kevin goes to church. He's feeling, if you remember the scene, he's feeling very lonely and scared, and he's walking by the church and he hears singing coming from inside. And it draws him in. He goes in and sits in a pew to listen to the children's choir. And that's when he sees the very scary, mysterious old man, Mr. Marley, approaching. But Mr. Marley greets Kevin with a smile and a Merry Christmas. And they end up sitting down together and having a very revealing conversation. It turns out that both of them, this little boy and this old man, they're both consumed with guilt. Kevin has been rotten toward his family, and only now in their absence does he realize how much he loves and appreciates them. Mr. Marley admits that he no longer has relationship with his family because of some awful things he said to his son years ago. Um, Now, Home Alone's not a Christian movie, of course, but right there in that scene, there's really an amazing picture of grace present in that moment. I want you to think about this. And if you go back and watch it, really notice. Both of these characters are sitting in church, both confessing their sins as the choir sings behind them. What were they singing? Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Both of these characters are in sin and error pining, each of them hoping that there is yet still some redemption for them despite their failures. And it's such a wonderful illustration for us of what Christmas really is all about. Y'all, there, there really is, truly, there is joy for the weary soul. There is forgiveness and hope for those pining in sin. What we celebrate at Christmas is not at all what we would expect, and it's certainly not what we deserve. The Christmas story tells us that by God's grace, the lowly are lifted up. The guilty may be redeemed. The obscure and forgotten are remembered and brought near to God. It's good news for us today, just as it was for the very first people who received it to begin with. We're going to see this in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. Now, as we read through Luke 1, uh, y'all, it reads as a who's who of Bible people. We've got Mary and Joseph, uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth, and their child, John the Baptist. We're talking about very famous people. But we also realize, I hope, that at the time that these events took place, 
Uh, these people are only famous in hindsight. At the time, these were obs obscure and unknown people. Nobody knew who they were. Mary and Joseph were, were just a poor, ordinary, betrothed couple. Uh, the shepherds, we'll read about them next week, they were as low down on the social ladder as you get. And then most surprising of all, even Jesus. Jesus, the long-awaited Savior, the Son of God, he comes into the world with no fanfare, a lowly child born to a lowly family, and laid down to rest in a manger, a feeding trough. It's a strange story. But of course, we, we realize all of this is very precise. It's very deliberate on God's part. It's consistent with God's heart and His character that's revealed to us throughout the Scripture that so often and almost always, God works through the lowly, through the humble, through those who have been discredited or who think they have nothing to offer. So often God works in unseen places and in unexpected ways with the outcome being that God's grace shines all the brighter, that God's glory is all the more prominent because we can't explain it in human terms. God takes the lowest, the darkest, the worst, and he makes it the most beautiful, the brightest. And we see that in Luke chapter 1. We get to witness God's glorious work done in the most unlikely way. So join me now in the scripture, Luke 1, verse 26. I know this is familiar, but let's pray for fresh eyes as we read. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, the angel said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now, this is true, at least for me, when we picture this visitation of the angel, Gabriel, he's visiting Mary. If you can picture it in your mind, you probably have some kind of Renaissance-style artwork image that comes to your mind, where the angel and Mary both have these like bright halos around their heads, lots of bright and glorious light. Mary's doing this for some reason. Um, but Luke doesn't tell us, by the real quick, Jesus in the manger is also doing this, as if he's teaching something from the manger. Not, not, not probable, not likely. I guess it could have happened. Um, anyway, Luke doesn't tell us the story that way. He doesn't mention light or glory. He tells us a very earthy kind of story. Gabriel, in fact, Gabriel comes to Nazareth, which was an absolute tiny little backwoods town to begin with. Anybody, uh, raise your hand, are you, anybody here from Bolton, Mississippi, perhaps? Or, uh, or Lake, or Meadville, or Crawford? You probably know somebody who is, if you're not there, from there. Y'all, these are all little Mississippi towns of less than 500 people, and that was Nazareth. Almost certainly less than 500 people, hardly even a blip on the radar. I, and I don't, I don't say this as a joke, honestly, it was the kind of town you'd only know about because of the storm watcher on Channel 16 when tornadoes are coming through. You say, I didn't know there was a town called Delo, right? Until David Hartman pointed it out. Y'all, that's Nazareth. And the, the angel goes to visit in Nazareth a poor young woman 
named Mary. Now, again, we all know who Mary is now, but nobody would have known who she was then. In the context of this story, she's a total stranger to us. We know almost nothing about her except that she was betrothed, engaged to a man named Joseph of the descendants of David. But y'all, Mary has no genealogy recorded in the Bible. We don't know who her parents were. We really don't know much about her life or what it was like. One thing that is clear, one thing we do know, from the mouth of Gabriel, Mary is favored by God. Now, what does it mean that Mary is favored? Uh, There are people who believe that this means Mary was essentially perfect. She never sinned. And therefore, she's favored here because she's she's essentially, she's the perfect vessel through which God will bring his son into the world. Now, that is not a belief that we hold. It's not something the Bible ever tells us. We don't believe that about Mary. We don't believe that God came to her because she was essentially perfect on her own. In fact, that doesn't really correspond with what Luke is telling us. Because, y'all, the word favor right there, that is a Greek word, fun little lesson this morning. It's the Greek word karitao, which means to be endowed with grace. It means God pours his grace upon you. And again, this is consistent with how God always operates. Y'all, God doesn't come to Mary because she is prominent to begin with, or wealthy, or especially well-educated. She has no influence. She has no celebrity. There's nothing about Mary, seemingly, that uh, that that, that garners God's attention and earns her the right. Now, we can tell. I don't want to discredit her. We can tell. Keep reading through Luke 1. Read the Magnificat. Mary was very humble, very faithful, very godly. Absolutely, yes. But there's never an indication in the Bible that she was the best of all the women in Israel. She didn't win the contest or the lottery from heaven. God doesn't say to Mary, you've earned the right for this. No, God says, you are favored. You have my favor. I'm endowing you with grace. Now, y'all, I'm not in the habit of comparing us to the the people of the Scripture, all right? not saying we're all just like Mary in this regard, but I want to encourage us on something. What happens to Mary here, the endowing of God's grace, that's how anybody comes into relationship with God. Nobody comes to God on the basis of our own merits, of our own religious devotion, or our own good works, or even our best intentions for what we could or should do. We only come to God only by receiving His favor, His grace, And his grace comes to us, not because we are good, but because he is. His goodness is the only way we can come to know him. He must provide a way. He must favor us. That's a gift. And so now, of course, Gabriel, telling Mary that God's grace is upon her, here's what God's grace is going to achieve. Look at verse 31. And behold, Gabriel says, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. There are, we know this. If you're familiar with the Bible, with the Old Testament, there are other places in the Bible where God promises a child 
to a couple, even a miraculous child. Most of us are familiar with the story of Isaac, the miracle child that was promised and then given to Abraham and Sarah. So this this promise of a miracle child isn't necessarily odd in itself, but it's clear as Gabriel is speaking that God is actually up to something he's never done before. This is not like Isaac. This is new. This is different. You notice what, what the angel says? He, the child, will be called the Son of the Most High. No man has ever been called this. The Lord will give him the throne of David, and his kingdom will have no end. It will be eternal. God is up to something new, something he's never done. Now, I mentioned this earlier. It's such a familiar story that as we're reading it, it might not strike you the way it first did or the way it ought to. It's just part of the Christmas story. But y'all stop with me just for a moment and try to consider what exactly God is planning here for the world through Mary I mean, we're talking about the creator of the universe, of all of it. He's about to send his own son into the world. God is going to come down to us. This is the most important thing there there ever was, the most important thing that could ever be done. The implications of this are universal. The promise is that the kingdom of this child will have no end. God is making the greatest of all statements and promises right here in Luke chapter 1. So how's he going to do it? How's he going to pull off this great and grand miracle Well, surely there are going to be some theatrics associated with this, some bright lights and trumpets and thunderous glory. No. Notice what the angel is doing. God God sends an angel into a little town we would have never heard of. Y'all, I can assure you, we would have never heard of Nazareth if not for this encounter. To a young woman no one would have ever heard of and says, from your womb, you will bear a son and call him Jesus. He will reign forever. His kingdom will have no end. But he's going to come to us in absolute lowliness and humility. Y'all, the king of the whole universe entered into the world the same way we did. The same way we did. Minus the epidural, probably. This is He makes himself lowly in order to rescue the lowly. Who does this? Y'all, if if God wanted to impress us with a great and grand show of His power, He could have. But He does the opposite here. As opposite as it could be. And, And Paul, the Apostle Paul, gives us some insight into this. I'd encourage you to go back and read it on your own. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul explains to us how salvation works completely opposite our own categories and expectations. Paul tells us in that chapter, 1 Corinthians 1, that God chooses the weak and the worthless, the base, the unseen, the unknown, the unwise. He chooses things that are low down and obscure in order to reveal His grace. And it brings shame to those who think they're so proud and mighty and rich and wise because God doesn't do it the way we would expect. He brings about our deliverance by taking on weakness, by coming in smallness and lowliness. Uh, When J.R.R. Tolkien imagined the Lord of the Rings, a lot of us are familiar at least with the movies, so you might know the story that there was a terrible evil that was fixed on the one ring, the ring of power, and the all-seeing evil eye of Sauron 
was bent on finding it. All of his energy was bent on it. And yet with all his power and all of his demonic forces, he never could quite locate it. He never could get his hands on it because the bearer of the one ring was Frodo, a little, obscure, unknown hobbit. Tolkien calls him the most unlikely creature imaginable. Not a king, not a prince, not even a soldier. An ordinary little hobbit. And what we realize throughout the story is this was Sauron's undoing. If the, if the ring had belonged to a king, he would have easily located it and seized it from his power. But because it belonged to Frodo, he never could quite see it and find it. It was always escaping his notice under the surface. Now, of course, Tolkien, being a Christian, was pointing us there, I think, to the gospel. That our deliverance from the powers of darkness, our only hope in life, comes from the most unlikely place, comes from the smallest of lights initially shining. God is going to reveal His great strength through pure weakness, a little baby. God is going to reveal His great glory through total obscurity and lowliness. That's how salvation comes to us. That is God's design. Now, sweet Mary finally has her opportunity to speak. And she asks a very obvious question in verse 34. Mary said to the angel, How can this be since I am a virgin? That's not a lack of faith. She's just curious. How can a woman who's never known a man have a baby? Verse 35, The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. That is such an amazing statement that the same God who created the universe from nothing, who spoke all of life into existence, will bring about life in your womb, Mary, by the awesome power of the Holy Spirit. And for that reason, Gabriel says, the holy child shall be called the Son of God. Now, y'all, there's an element of mystery we hold to here, but not contradiction. And oftentimes in the Scripture, uh, the Trinity is a terrific example to this, that God is triune, Father, Son, and Spirit. There's mystery there without contradiction. Here's another place. When we speak of the virgin birth, Part of the point of Jesus being born of human Mary and the Holy Spirit is that we see in Jesus Christ the one person who ever lived who was both fully God and fully man without contradiction. Not 50-50, but fully both divine and human, perfectly holy Jesus and perfectly humble, touchable, eternal Savior and adorable little baby. He is both at once. In fullness. Now, if, again, if you grew up in church like me, y'all, I wish I could tell you how many times I've heard this story, heard it sung, heard it preached, read it myself. If you're anything like me, you're just, there's no way around it. We get numb to it. Through so much repetition and recitation, we get numb to it. And what I mean is, we read Luke 1, and, and probably if you're like me, you just take it at face value that God's Son, the Savior of the world, was born as a baby in a 
from a virgin's womb. And we say, sure. I see, no, I see nothing strange about that. And in that case, you're numb to it. We don't see it with fresh eyes. We don't see it for the outrageous, just silliness that that story to, to the natural mind, to the person who, who is unenlightened by the Holy Spirit, we, that's, it's, it's crazy, this story. But by God's grace, we see it, again, with, as, as mystery but without contradiction. Yes, God can do this, and God has done this. But y'all think about this, not just that it's a, an outrageous story, but the burdensomeness of this for Mary. It's, I, this, is not, this is something I could never possibly imagine. Maybe one day I'll see her in heaven and ask what it was like to be given such an assignment, to have the weight of the world in, a, in a eternity, it, it seems, the salvation of the, I mean, just seemingly on her shoulders, in her womb. But y'all notice her response here. Mary's response in verse 38. She says, Behold the bond slave of the Lord. May it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Uh, a reminder that Mary was not divine or superhuman or perfect, but she was humble and faithful and obedient beyond our typical categories here. I don't know how you or I might respond in this case, but her response is so precious and instructive. She says, Lord, I'm yours. May this be done to me according to your word and your will. This is it's the most amazing posture a person can take before the Lord. It's right here on display for us. And I just wonder, by way of application, if our hearts, where we sit right now, if we look anything like Mary, we trust, of course, knowing that God, God's not going to come around and ask someone to do this again. It's happened once for all. The Savior of the world has come. But in anything God should ask of us or command of us in His Word, do I have the kind of heart that corresponds to Mary, right here. This young, probably terrified lady being given the, the, the task of all tasks and saying, of course, do whatever you want, I'm yours. If, if that's not my heart and yours in the things God calls us to do and to be, then we ought to pray that it would be. Y'all, when I was growing up in Conroe Church of Christ, we, we would sing a song that said, have thine own way, Lord. Have thine own way. I am the potter. You are the potter, sorry. You are the potter. This was a long time ago. You are the potter. I am the clay. Um, do we really believe that? Is that how we operate? Mary did. Mary did. Let that be true of us. And let me bring us back as we kind of round the final corner here. I want to bring us back to that scene in Home Alone that I mentioned at the first. Uh, as, as the old man Marley sits in the pew next to Kevin, you remember this, he asks him a very typical Christmas time question. He says, you've been a good boy this year. And Kevin says, I think so. You swear to it? No. I had a feeling. Then Marley says, well... This is the place to be if you're feeling bad about yourself. And it's obvious that Kevin had never considered that before. That was a total shock to him. Church is the place to be if you are feeling guilty, if you, had, if you have acted sinfully, 
or shamefully. This is the place to be. Now see, most people, including me and maybe you, we struggle to believe that. Our natural assumption, I think, says that church, church belongs to people who feel good about themselves. People who have made the cut. People who are devoted and religious and who have their lives together, at least outwardly. Don't we try so hard? There's a very real impulse in us that says, if I'm a sinner, if I'm feeling guilty, if I'm downtrodden, if I'm lonely, if I'm grieving, if there's any, if I'm experiencing any kind of darkness of the soul, church is the last place I'd feel welcome. I can't go back until I've gotten myself back together. I can't come to God until I've gotten back on my feet, at least a little bit. But y'all, the Christmas story turns that impulse right on its head. This idea that we don't really belong unless we're put together, unless we're doing well. What Marley says to, to Kevin is, you're always welcome in church. And I want to echo that right now. We're always welcome, always. And it's for the same reason that we're welcome to the Lord, regardless of sin or circumstance. It's not because of anything that we have done, good or bad. It's because of what God has done without regard for our worthiness. It's not our goodness that makes the appeal to God that He would grant us His acceptance and favor. No, there's no amount of goodness that could achieve that. And there's no amount of badness that can disqualify us from His grace. Because the Scripture says that on the basis of God's kindness and goodness, He saves us. When the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of good deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy. Titus 3. And so, y'all, the good news, right? I mean, right smack dab in the middle of all of our failures and sins and our darkness is that God, at Christmas, enters in, endowing His favor, bestowing His grace, Into our lowliness, God comes down. And in the most amazing way, He actually takes on our lowliness and carries it Himself. So the central message of the Bible is not that lowly people like you and me, if we could just get our act together for once, then God would smile upon us. No. The good news is that Jesus Christ really has come all the way down, all the way down to take away our sin and shame by bearing it Himself, by showing us His great mercy and love, a love for sinners. And so it makes sense, I think, I hope, it makes sense to us, that God would go to people like Mary and Joseph in places like Nazareth and Bethlehem. If that's the way God operates, if He makes His grace shine most brightly, in the darkest places, if He gives His his purest mercy and blessing to those in lowest estate, then the Christmas story makes perfect sense. And then perhaps it begins to make sense for us that Jesus would be born just that way, born into obscurity, alone, unnoticed, poor, and fragile. Jesus comes to us just like that. And this is a carryover from what we saw last week. If you remember from Philippians chapter 2, 
that Jesus, being in very nature God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. He didn't hold on to his glory, but he emptied himself. He made himself nothing for our sake. And y'all, the son who was born to us also carried a cross and died for us. And then because death could not hold him in its power, he rose again victorious once and for all so that by faith in him, not our works, not our goodness, but on the basis of his goodness, we may be rescued from darkness and brought into his marvelous light. That's the gospel. That was Mary's hope. And that is our hope. If we will receive the free and abundant gift of his favor, the endowing of his grace this Christmas. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you that uh, even in the silliness of a movie, we might find a glimmer of what is good and true. Lord, thank you far more that in the precious eternal truth of your word, we don't find a glimmer. Lord, we find the brightest possible light, the very person of Jesus Christ revealed to us and for us. Thank you, Lord, that we are welcome to you this morning. Fully, freely, and eternally, we are welcome to you. Father, you will not bar us from your presence. You will not turn your back at us or your nose up at us. Lord, if we will simply turn to Jesus and trust him. Lord, if we come on our own merits, if we, if we come proudly thinking we're somebody, then we will not experience this grace at all. And so, Lord, I pray this morning, thank you for what we really are, if we're willing to see it. Help us to see it. We are lowly. We are not good enough on our own. We never were, nor could we be. Father, even on our best day, even with our best intentions, Father, we fall short of the glory of God. Lord, strike that from our, our categories this morning. Let that not even be a consideration. We don't come here into your presence among your people to earn anything. Lord, we come in response to the gracious gift of your son, Jesus Christ, the lowly one in the manger who took on all that we are, our weakness, our sin. He became sin for us, our shame, our condemnation, so that we might be made righteous in him. I pray, Lord, this morning that this good news, this wonderful Christmas story, would come alive for us in new ways. Lord, I know we've heard it before. I pray, Lord, that we would not be numb to it, that we would not just nod in agreement with it, but that, Lord, we would be amazed by it, amazed by your grace, that, Lord, in the most, the most outrageous way, Father, you would reveal yourself to the world, you would come into the world 
the way you have. And Lord, I pray that that for us this would be evidence and encouragement. There is absolutely no one in this room or online so low down, so far away or far gone that, Lord, by your wonderful, gracious hand, you cannot and will not reach and save. Lord, your grace abounds to those who receive it freely. May we receive you and thank you, Lord, with all our hearts. May we say thank you for our lowly Savior, Jesus Christ, who now sits on his throne and his kingdom has no end and he will rule and reign forever and we will worship him as the light of all creation forever. But first, he came to us in a manger. Thank you, Lord, that you love us that much. And so we worship you, I pray, with all our hearts this morning. In Christ's name, amen.